Please stand for the reading of the Old Testament lesson taken from Job chapter 40, verses 1 through 14. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer, twice, but I will say no more. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's, and can your voice thunder like this? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor, and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at every proud man and bring him low. Look at every proud man and humble him. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own might, right hand, can save you. Shall we pray? Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ by promise and shadow in these pages. Help us to understand these words for thy name's sake. Amen. The New Testament lesson for this morning is taken from Paul's epistle to Romans, chapter 8, verses 28 through 39. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as a fulfillment of the Old Testament and ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. The book of Job is not only a great piece of literature, 
But as Francis Anderson points out, Job is truly God's gift to humanity, while at the same time is one of the supreme offerings of the human mind back to God. There is a reason why John Calvin preached 159 sermons on the book of Job. There is a seemingly endless treasure of wisdom to be mined from its pages. For it's here in the book of Job that we have an account of a good and respected man who lived about the time of Abraham, who was nearly overwhelmed by the loss of all he owned, who faced the death of nearly all those whom he loved, who lost his health and his good name, and who suffered all of this without ever knowing why. And yet, as a man of faith, Job refused to curse God or blame him for his troubles before finally being restored and vindicated in the end. And while the book of Job has a very happy ending, the story of Job also raises a number of important, indeed daunting, theological questions for all who read it. Why do the righteous suffer? What can we learn from Job should God call us to suffer? And what can we learn from the story of Job which will help us should our friends and family suffer? Now, having worked our way through the entire book, we're only now in a position to draw some final conclusions and to make some application. Throughout this series, a number of you have asked me very thoughtful questions about how the story of Job applies to Christians today or even to your own particular circumstances. The reason why we need to address these questions only after we've worked our way through the entire book is simply because we can't make application about the mystery of suffering until we've read the entire story of Job and placed Job's ordeal against the backdrop of redemptive history. Now, I recently heard someone cite from Eliphaz's first speech to Job and recount how they used those words as biblical counsel to someone they knew who was suffering. They Turn to Job's words in Job 42, verse 6. Therefore I despise myself and repent in ashes as proof that Eliphaz's counsel to Job was correct. Job needed to repent of his sins, therefore God would restore him. And the suffering friend was told, well, if you only repent of your sins like Job, God will restore you. The problem is that as a Christian, the poor sufferer had already repented of their sins perhaps hundreds of times, and yet the person was still suffering. Sadly, the only conclusion the sufferer could draw was that either God didn't love them or hear their prayers, or else Christianity is simply not true. There's no one home to hear the prayers. But there was one conclusion the sufferer should have drawn, but apparently did not. And that is that his friend was quoting Eliphaz favorably because his friend was every bit as cruel and boneheaded as Eliphaz was. In this case, the failure lies with, not with the sufferer, but with the counselor. But if we know the entire book of Job, we know that in Job 42, verse 6, Job is not repenting for sins that he didn't commit so that God would restore him. Rather, Job was repenting for seeking to justify himself rather than God once the ordeal got underway. Furthermore, if we know the whole story of Job, we know that Job is very easily able to silence Eliphaz because of the self-evident fact that righteous people suffer and wicked people prosper. We also know that Eliphaz, despite his age and wisdom, is very quickly silenced by the much younger Elihu. And we know that God rebukes Eliphaz for speaking improperly about God's altogether just and righteous ways, even as Job is vindicated. 
And so while Eliphaz correctly believed that the holy God must punish all sin, Eliphaz incorrectly jumped to the conclusion that Job was suffering because God was punishing him for some sin, secret or otherwise, that Job supposedly had committed. But you know this only if you've taken the time to read the whole book and to view Job's ordeal against the backdrop of the big picture of redemptive history. Now, there's nothing worse when someone, and no matter how well-intended they are, lifts passages like the speech of Eliphaz without regard to the context or the bigger picture of redemptive history and then uses that passage as a club on the sufferer. Look, all you need to do is repent and your suffering will end. Now, a number of you have told me stories that are very similar, and many of the sufferers in our midst can recount similar counsel being given to them during the dark night of suffering and sickness. Many times, people with the best of intentions feel like they have to provide answers and remedies for the suffering of others without having a clue as to why that person is actually suffering. And such well-intended advice can often become as cruel and thoughtless as the words of Eliphaz to his friend Job. And that it is why it is only after we've seen the big picture, after we've read the entire story, after we've put Job's ordeal into its proper place, we're finally in a position to talk about application to our own particular situations today. Now, the most important question raised throughout this series is simply this. What can we learn from Job about the mystery of suffering? Now, the answer is really very simple. In the book of Job, God never once gives Job an answer to this question, other than to point out to Job that Yahweh is the creator and sustainer of all things, that he rules over all of creation, and that Job has no right whatsoever to even question the ways of the Lord. Now, to many, especially to those in the midst of suffering or to skeptics who doubt the Christian faith, that is no answer at all. But while we can empathize with the sufferer who wants to know why me, and while we can easily reject the views of the skeptic, nevertheless, the fact remains, God will not be questioned by sinners. He is holy. We're not. And he need not give us an answer. Now, as one wag once put it, when God appears to Job from the midst of the storm, we have something like Job being told to sit down and shut up. And that becomes perfectly clear in the first 14 verses of Job 40. After Job had demanded a written indictment and to be treated as a prince, the Lord appears to Job from the midst of the storm. And as we saw, this is an act of grace because God doesn't confront Job with his sins, but nevertheless, Job is put in his place. And thus, when God speaks to Job, we read, The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. It is God who now questions Job, since Job has no right to question God. Now that litany of questions God asks of Job as recorded in Job chapters 38 through 41 is one of the most remarkable passages in all the Bible. Where was Job when God created the world and hung the stars into space? Where was Job when God separated the day from the night or when God set the boundaries for the seas? Job is but a mere man, a, a sinful, albeit justified man at that. And Yahweh now has him by the belt and has completely subdued him. And so as God speaks to Job, we are reminded that God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. 
No one, the Scripture says, can fathom Him. Like Job, we are bound by time and space, but God is not. Like Job, we too are confronted with those questions that Yahweh asked of Him. Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all of this. What is the way to the abode of light, and where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You've lived so many years. The creature is not the creator, and grasping that fact is the beginning of true wisdom. There's only one thing for Job to say in response to this. In Job 40, verse 3, Then Job answered the Lord, I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Even though there's nothing Job can say, it is enough for Job to know that Yahweh is not angry at him and that the Lord God has graciously condescended to speak to him. And yet, as we see in verses 6 and following, there's still much more for Job to learn. Then the Lord said to Job out of the storm, Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's, and can your voice thunder like His? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor, and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at every proud man and bring him low. Look at every proud man and humble him. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. Only God can vindicate himself since only God is holy. The sins for which Job repents in ashes and dust are not those sins of which he's been unjustly accused of having committed by his three knucklehead friends. Rather, Job repents for having questioned God's justice toward him. But Job gets no answer whatsoever to the question, why me? Once God appears to Job from the storm, the question just seems to go away. So on one level, the answer we get from Job about the mystery of suffering is that God is holy, that we're not, and that we are not to question the ways of God. Just as God will not be questioned by Job, so too God will not be questioned by any sinful creature, including us. As Paul puts it in Romans 9.20, Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Now, we might say that trying to find the answer to the question of human suffering by looking directly to the God of the whirlwind is like trying to understand the sun by staring at it for hours upon hours. It's too much for us. We're blinded. Creatures cannot understand the ways of the Creator because God is simply too far beyond our comprehension. But, on another level, there's a very profound and wonderful answer to the mystery of suffering that's hinted at throughout the book of Job. Because unlike Job, we don't deal with the God of the whirlwind. As Job's ordeal slowly unfolds, Job slowly comes to see that he needs God's wisdom both to understand and to accept what has happened to him. And as his suffering drags on, Job realizes that what is truly needed is a mediator, someone who will argue his case for him with the God of the storm. Now recall back in Job 9.33, we read Job's lament. If only there were someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hand upon us both. In Job 16, verse 20, we find these words. 
My intercessor is my friend as my eyes pour out tears to God. And then we read these amazing words, Job's confession of faith in Job 19.25. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end He will stand on the earth. And then finally, in Job 33, verse 23, we read, If there is an angel on his side as a mediator, one out of a thousand to tell a man what is right for him. Having gained true wisdom, Job points us in the right direction. Although he himself encountered God in the whirlwind, given our place in redemptive history, we don't have to face God in the midst of a storm. Rather, we encounter God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who is, as Scripture says elsewhere, the man of sorrows. Now, it's clear from the story of Job that we can't see God nor even begin to understand His mysterious ways unless and until we seek divine wisdom in Holy Scripture. And such wisdom is to be found in the mediator of whom Job was speaking, our Lord Jesus, who is the wisdom of God incarnate. In fact, when placed into the larger context of this grand drama of redemptive history, Job's ordeal, his trial, is by itself taken as one of these important keys to understanding the mystery of suffering. Remember, it is Yahweh who brought Job to Satan's attention. It is Satan who took the bait and afflicted Job. And it was Job who emerged from the trial victorious. And all of that points us ahead in type and shadow to the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater Job, yet to come. Not only was Jesus tempted by the devil... But Jesus endured both the shame and the rejection of his people before he suffered greatly to the point of death. But unlike Job, Jesus was without sin. Job the sinner could not complain because even though he's justified before God and had done nothing to bring about the ordeal through which he's facing, Job was in no place to challenge the purposes of God. But Jesus Christ, the Holy One of God, had done nothing to deserve the things he received. Now, we ought to take note of a pattern in Job's ordeal that later comes to full flower in the gospel. Job made burnt offerings on behalf of his family and then later on for his friends. But Jesus offered the supreme sacrifice for sin, namely himself. It's our guilt that's imputed to Jesus and it's through his perfect obedience in the midst of a trial beyond measure that we are saved from sin's guilt Its power over us is broken, and we are reckoned or accredited as righteous. And thus, beloved, in Jesus Christ, we have the very thing that Job saw was needed, but he didn't have, a mediator. Now, the practical consequences of this are vital to see. Beloved, we need not encounter the God of the storm. No, God graciously comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ, again referred to in Scripture as a man of sorrows, who suffered in all ways as have we, who makes intercession for us in times of trial, who pours out his blessed Holy Spirit into our hearts so that we are guaranteed the redemption of our bodies. And in this, the wisdom of God is wonderfully displayed for all of God's people to see, and it's in the doing and the dying of Jesus Christ. And therefore, while God never tells us why we suffer, he does tell us that there is a reason for our suffering even if it's a reason that he chooses not to reveal to us. In fact, the universal pattern of redemptive history demonstrates that whenever God brings suffering into the lives of his people, it is always followed by a glorious and grand restoration. 
God has revealed this pattern to us in the life and the death and the resurrection of His own dear Son. For as Jesus, who is the greater Job, suffered and died, so too Jesus rose again from the dead completely victorious and is even now on this day crowned King of kings and Lord of lords. And through our union with Christ, through faith and in a bond affected by the Holy Spirit, Jesus' victory over, the, over death and the grave is ours. Now the lesser Job is a justified sinner. Scripture says he was blameless and upright. Yet Job suffered horribly before receiving a glorious vindication and a grand restoration with a double blessing in the end. The greater Job, Jesus, is without sin and yet suffered far more than Job did before being raised from the dead before ascending on high, where that same Lord this morning now lives to make intercession for us, His people. Beloved, we have the very thing Job longed for. We have an intercessor in times of trial. But what Job did not anticipate is that our heavenly intercessor is a fellow sufferer, someone who knows both the meaning of suffering and the glories of those of the glories which lie ahead for those for whom He intercedes. And thus, as we suffer, our intercessor can not only empathize with us as a fellow sufferer, but as God in human flesh, he has the power to ensure that we will participate in his glorious victory. Job longed for the very thing we so easily take for granted. And so while the why question is never answered, nevertheless, there is a resolution of the mystery. The suffering of God's people will either in this life or in the next lead to a glorious victory and to an inheritance which so far surpasses human understanding that we cannot even begin to conceive of it. Well, how do we know this to be true when the God of the whirlwind is so far beyond our ways, his thoughts are so great that we cannot possibly conceive of his greatness? We know this because the God of the storm, the God of the whirlwind took on human flesh and came to die upon a cross before being raised from the dead. And the pattern is clearly established for us in the gospel. The ordeal of the cross and the suffering that goes with it must precede the victory of the resurrection. Why? Because this is how God redeems us from the guilt and the power of sin. And this is why it is utterly foolish to talk about the mystery of suffering without looking at the big picture, of which the story of Job is an important part but which ultimately directs us ahead in redemptive history to the life and death of Jesus Christ. Beloved, it's only after Christ has come and fulfilled all righteousness through his own suffering and resurrection that the words Christians so often quote from Romans 8, 28-39 finally make any sense and bring true comfort. These are words you all know. Paul says, "...and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him." who have been called according to his purpose. Nothing happens by chance. God works all things for good, even things that might be sinful and horrible in themselves. God can and he does turn all things to good, not just some things. And unlike Eliphaz, we need to see that this may not come to pass until the next life. And that becomes clear as we read farther in Paul. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. 
Beloved, God doesn't start the process that may include suffering and then give up and quit in the middle. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And here's the key line for our discussion this morning. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? If true, it means that we do not suffer because we have committed some particular sin. Now, we might suffer because of the consequences of our actions. But God is not about the business of punishing us retributively or exacting revenge. Why? Because Christ has suffered and died for each and every one of our sins. In fact, Paul goes on to say, it is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Jesus Christ, who died more than that, was raised to life. He is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Jesus is that very one for whom Job was looking. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And then this great line that is said about the wicked who are justified. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Suffering cannot separate us from God. There's no circumstance, there's no situation which is beyond God's control or which God is not present. Beloved, the God of the whirlwind does not approach us in the storm, but he approaches us in the person of Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us. And that's where the story of Job directs us, to Jesus Christ, where all these profound mysteries are resolved. Well, with that question dealt with, then we can turn to the second question. What can the sufferer learn from Job? Well, in the suffering and ordeal of Job, we meet a real-life flesh-and-blood sufferer who has moments of great faith in which he serves as a wonderful example to us and who becomes increasingly embittered and self-righteous over the course of his ordeal, matters about which Job becomes less of an example to us. And thus, when we look to Job for guidance about what to do when we suffer, we need to keep these facts in mind. There are things in the life of Job to emulate and things in the response of Job to avoid. But the most important thing we need to keep in mind is that the role of Job's suffering by ordeal plays a very unique and important role in redemptive history. And his suffering, at least as to the reason why he suffers, is unlike anything that we will face. It is Yahweh who calls Satan's attention to Job, his blameless and upright servant. And when Satan sees this as an opportunity to undermine the foundation of the gospel, God's just and righteous dealing with all his creatures. Satan takes the bait and seeks permission to afflict this man who is the apple of God's eye. And so when Job endures this trial by ordeal, a very important principle is established. God is not a cosmic blackmailer. Obey me and I'll make you rich. Nor is Job a hypocrite who obeys God only to gain health and wealth and prosperity. 
despite the loss of everything. Job refuses to curse God or blame him for his ordeal. And all of that is intended to point us ahead to Jesus Christ, who will fully and finally defeat Satan when he suffers and dies on the cross. Now, we live in an age in which Satan is not only an already defeated foe, but he's been cast down from heaven. And according to Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, he's confined to the abyss where he is prevented from deceiving the nations because the preaching of the gospel is said to bind him. What that means for us is that Satan no longer has access to the throne of God to accuse us, as he did in the days of Job or even of Zechariah the prophet. When we suffer, it is not because the devil has made a deal with God to test our allegiance. Satan can no longer do such a thing. When we suffer, it is not because the devil is afflicting us, but because God allows it for reasons he may or may not choose to tell us. Nor does our own faithfulness in times of trial help establish the truth of the gospel as it did in Job's case, nor does our lack of faith undermine the gospel. To put it bluntly, while God cares about each of us when we suffer, we're not that important to the story of redemptive history. Christ has already defeated Satan, and any obedience or faithfulness we muster surely serves as a glorious vindication of God's righteous ways of doing. Now that being said, when Job is first afflicted, we read, At this Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, May the name of the Lord be praised. In all of this we read, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Now the most important way that Job serves as an example to us when we suffer is that Job refuses to blame God and he acknowledges that God can do with him as God wills. And this, of course, anticipates the prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane when Jesus prays, yet not as I will, but as you will, thy will be done. And that should be our prayer whenever suffering comes. But we also learn from the story of Job that it's a sin to seek to justify ourselves rather than God. As we watch poor Job become increasingly concerned about the loss of his good name and when he'd done nothing wrong, Job finally gets to the place where he's demanding that God answer him and that God treat him like a prince. Well, that's something we must strive to avoid whenever suffering comes. The grim reality of suffering is that it's very easy for the sufferer to do exactly what Job did because nothing chips away at our perspective on these things any faster than sickness and grief and pain. And while we have every right to ask of God that our good name be vindicated, the way we seek the vindication of ourselves is to defend the rights of God to do with us whatever he wishes with the expectation that God will keep his promise to vindicate our good name in the end. But even here, the focus should fall on the faithfulness of God, not on our rights to be delivered or our rights to be vindicated. Now, all of this means that the time to prepare for suffering is before suffering comes. Because once suffering comes upon us, it's very easy to lose all perspective on these things and to fall into despair or bitterness. It also means that every sufferer We'll go through times of despair and doubt and complaint and self-pity, but nevertheless, they remain justified. Well, why is that so important? 
Well, it means that Jesus Christ was the perfect sufferer. Jesus Christ never doubted. He never complained. He never pitied himself. And when we trust in Christ, his perfect suffering is imputed to us so that God sees us not as a doubting, complaining, demanding self-pityer, but as someone who always prays, not my will, but thy will be done. Furthermore, the one in whom we trust and whose righteousness we receive by faith is a fellow sufferer. And he has suffered far more than any person who has ever lived. And not only does he empathize with us in our trials, not only will he never abandon us, but Jesus himself has promised us that he will never give us more than we can bear and that he will always provide us with a way of escape. This, then, is what we learn from the suffering of Job. Job points us ahead to Jesus Christ, the perfect sufferer. And last, what can the friends and family of the sufferer learn from Job? Well, one thing should be perfectly clear. Having read the words of Eladad and Bildad and Zophar, we now know what not to say to someone who is suffering. There is no direct connection between the degree of someone's suffering and their sins, and we can't leap to such a conclusion. Now, yes, there are times when it's perfectly clear why somebody's suffering. Someone who drinks and drives might go through tragedy. Someone who cheats on their spouse might ruin their life and destroy their family. Someone who smokes might get lung cancer. Yes, in some cases, there is a cause and effect relationship between a person's behavior and their suffering. But in most cases, when people are called to suffer, there is no such connection. And this is especially the case in the lives of the righteous, justified sinners who, like Job, have done nothing to bring down the covenant curses on their heads. Only God knows why such people must endure trial. We don't and should never presume to speak for God. Now, in one sense, Job's friends serve as a wonderful example of what to do when someone we love suffers. Recall that when Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar learned of Job's suffering, we read of them, they set out from their homes, met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Now, had they kept silent and continued to comfort their suffering friend, they would have helped Job greatly. But after Job's lament in Job 3, they're no longer concerned with comforting Job. They want to correct him. And they're preoccupied with ensuring that they're right and Job sees he's wrong. So much so that they cruelly apply to their suffering friend their own flawed view of God's justice. And so instead of comforting Job, they're not accusing the guy of sin. This we cannot do. And yet, what is the very first thought that enters your mind when something horrible happens? What did I do to make God mad at me? While it is my sacred duty as a minister of the gospel to be the absolver of sins, that is, I stand in Christ's place and say, go in peace, your sins are forgiven, every Christian participates in the priesthood of Christ and is therefore perfectly capable of declaring to a fellow sufferer that whatever the reason for their suffering may be, if they are in Christ, their sins are forgiven and that God is not retributively punishing. That's why James connects healing with forgiveness and why he exhorts sufferers to ask for the elders to come and pray for them. Because as James tells us, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. 
First and foremost, sick people and sufferers need to be assured of God's favor. They don't need to be accused of having sinned. Now, at the end of the day, we have no business whatsoever trying to figure out why somebody's suffering and then informing them of our opinions on the matter. We can't do what Eliphaz did and bombard the sufferer with reasons that we think explain their suffering and then come and confront them with what we think they can do to change God's will. That's not helpful. It's cruel. And if we learn one thing from the story of Job, it is that God alone knows why he does what he does. And God alone has the power to turn suffering to good. As creatures, we can't speak for God, nor do we hold in our hands the keys to the resolution of the mystery of suffering. Christ does. Most times it's better to just be silent, content to be with the sufferer, so that they're not alone in their times of suffering and despair. That is, unless, of course, they'd prefer to be left alone, and our presence only bugs them and eggs them on. Now, Scripture tells us that God's people are to comfort the sufferer by praying for them, by reminding them of the promises of God from Holy Scripture. And those promises include the forgiveness of sins and the glories of our inheritance in Christ. And by showing to them the kind of compassion that eliminates the hardship of suffering as much as is humanly possible. Nothing helps the sick and the suffering any more than to take away from them the worries of life. Watching the kids, preparing meals, providing transportation, helping them get work, and so on. All of those things are vital. What the sufferer needs is a word of comfort. Someone to listen to them. Someone who will sit quietly with them, just like Job's friends did at the beginning. And all of these things are vital to aid the sufferer. And beloved, they're our joyful duty when our brothers and sisters in Christ are called to suffer. No one wants to suffer. But we will. And like Job, all we can say when suffering comes is, how can I reply to you? But we also pray as Jesus did, not my will be done, but your will be done. And unlike poor Job, we do not have to find God in the times of the dark night in the midst of the storm. We find him in the person of his own dear son, Jesus Christ, who is not only the man of sorrows, but is also the great physician and who has loved us and given himself for us. For he is the greater Job and he will never leave us nor forsake us, even in the worst times of trial and in the darkest night of the soul. And at the end of the day, it is to Jesus, the greater Job, that the entire book of Job points all of us. Amen.